appreciate the thoughtfulness and the song selection. Those were encouraging hymns. I I like um I don't I think music and um you know sometimes it's preferences and just good music that helps us to worship and think about the Lord or uh that's encouraging. Appreciate that, Scott. And it's great to have Barney back today. I meant to say that earlier, but great. This uh, Barney's been recovering from some medical problems, and awesome to have you you all back in worship with us today. Turn with me to Acts chapter number six, and uh, we're going to look at a very lengthy passage of scripture, and then I'm going to synthesize it because it's like sixty something verses. So, uh, Acts chapter six. It's the narrative of Stephen and his martyrdom. And uh, beginning there in verse number 8, the Bible says, Then there arose from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Men and brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that this that his descendants would sojourn in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers first And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously 
with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deed, deeds. But when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a sojourner in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dare not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I've certainly seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now I will send you, now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, this Moses, whom you rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to to him on Mount Sinai. And uh, And our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Yes, you took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Ramphan images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern they had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What what house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? 
You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When you heard these things, excuse me, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Father, thank you for the Bible. We pray that you use it now to speak to us. Cleanse us, God. Forgive us in the ways that we fail. Give us the capacity to listen and to internalize truth and to change. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I felt like I needed to tag somebody in to read a part of that. It's a long, a long passage, and I promise not to preach every detail of this. We're going to look at the you know, 10,000-foot uh, view of this passage. But our approach has been to go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so we want to look at this story, at this narrative. It is a complete narrative of an event that happened. It introduces some important ideas and acts, one of which we see in the very end, that they lay their uh, clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, And so Saul, this is coming to a turning point in Acts. After chapter 9, what we will find is that the emphasis is shifting away from Jerusalem and to Antioch, like we said before, which is going to be the mission-sending city, a place where the church is growing, where the people understand that the gospel message is for the nations, and they begin to proclaim Christ, and they begin to see the movement of the gospel cover the civilized world from where they are at that point. So we see some uh, things that are beginning to take form in this passage that are important to the overall uh, narrative in, in the book of Acts. And so we see that context. Well, one thing we notice about Stephen in this passage is that being right, uh, okay, I just want to see what's up there. All right, uh, being right, virtuous on the side of what is godly is no assurance that a person will not suffer for uh, their faith. That you can be right and still suffer. We were talking about this in Sunday school earlier. Sometimes we think following Jesus means that uh, life is just rainbows and puppies and you know everything's always uh, wonderful. But the reality is that when we commit to truth, we, we are going against the grain of the way that many people in the world perceive reality. And the fact really is that the reality of spiritual warf- warfare accompanies a commitment to follow Jesus. When we become followers of Jesus, what we discover is that we have become aligned against the forces of evil in the world. That's what you did, whether you knew it or not. So if we commit to live for Jesus, we should anticipate difficulty. 
That's what Stephen encounters. He's living for truth. It didn't excuse him from the possibility of persecution and and suffering. And Jesus warned his followers of that very issue. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, as it is. You do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. And that, he says, is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also, Jesus said. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. And so it's hard for us to imagine our faith being a matter of life and death. For most of us, that's inconceivable, right? I've only probably been in one situation in in my life where I thought my faith could be very costly. It was when we were uh, went on a mission trip to India, and the people that were uh, hosting us had set up this large evangelistic event, and we spoke on a cricket pitch in India before a large. Because uh, anywhere you go in India, there are large numbers of people. There are like almost two billion people there. So a small city is like a million people there. So all these people gathered to hear the good news proclaimed, and they came and took our passports from us while we were waiting for this event to happen. And I don't know much, but I know you don't want to be anywhere that they come and get your passport. I felt a little uneasy. But for most of us, most of the time, our fate does not feel like a matter of life and death. In fact, uh, when we evaluate American Christianity, what we can see is for most of us, we're barely inconvenienced by the faith we proclaim. So in the, in the first century and in places in the world still that you can go, the further north you go in India, as you get closer to Nepal, you are much more likely to attract violent persecution for naming Christ. And so there are places in the world where it still could cost you your life. It's very unlikely in the modern secular West for that to happen to us. And that's part of the problem, I would say, is that it doesn't feel costly. In fact, faith and the expression of it among Western Christians often feels optional. We behave as if it's an option. It feels like a menu item that people take or leave, and often they leave it. They don't take it. It's as much a problem, perhaps, as living someplace where we attract persecution because of uh, the affluence of our country. And we've talked about this before and how uh, we're drifting into this pattern of secularism that detracts from the idea that there are meaningful things that are worth the investment of our life. There's something meaningful in this world that is worth the investment of our life. And of course it is the fact that Jesus came and declared himself to be God in human form. And that he went to a cross for us and took our place there and was buried and raised from the dead on the third day. And as we interact with that reality, as I've thought about it, there is nothing that we could say is bigger or more important than that. I don't see how we could say anything else is bigger or more important than that. And so it it calls us into a, a pattern of living. But it's hard for us to appreciate the fact that our faith could be that costly. I read this quote this past week where someone said people in the, uh, we think about uh, people that used to build Gothic uh, cathedrals and there's a 
uh, what's not there for some reason, but I, there's a, uh, I saw this online, this Gothic cathedral that basically this uh, Hermann Heinrich Hein was the German poet who uh, was asked why people don't build Gothic cathedrals. He said, people in those old times had convictions. We moderns have opinions. And he says, it needs more than a mere opinion to erect a Gothic cathedral. I don't know if he's right or wrong, honestly, about the, you know, that it takes conviction. Uh, but they they had an aspiration in mind to create a basically architectural work of art that spoke to something so big that it, and so immense that it was... Uh, an expression of their faith in a way. And, of course, I don't think for a moment that the nature of a building decides what we believe about God. I think much more the nature of our heart as worshipers decides that. But I do agree completely with what, he, what the the thought here is that you will follow convictions, and your convictions will be the thing that speak out of your life to people about Christ or not. And so when we look at this passage and we think about martyrdom, here's what, uh, you know, the way I phrased it is that for us, martyrdom basically is unlikely. But being obedient every day, that's in front of us, the option of that, to do it or not to do it, to follow Jesus with a worship and witnessing life or not to. That is realistic. And so when we look at what happened to Stephen, you will follow this narrative, and it, I think it instructs us in that way. So what we see is that Stephen is, okay, I'm sorry. I'm distracted because um, some of what's up here is not back there. <laughs> I'm used to seeing it, so I'll get over it in just a minute. But the first aspect of this we see is his testimony and his arrest. His, uh, uh, so th- this Stephen's sermon has two parts that we're going to see. My sermon has two parts that we're going to see. Here's the first part of it. Is that his, we see his testimony, which caused his arrest. His testimony caused his arrest. So he had yielded his life to serve Christ. It was not an afterthought for him at all. It wasn't a part-time commitment. That wasn't what got him arrested. It wasn't something he did in his spare time. Right? What got him arrested was his verbal allegiance to Christ. His allegiance to Christ lived out as a way of life. God was witnessing through his life, so we see that that he was known. Last week we looked at the idea that he was a deacon. That was they named seven guys that were. We we said that these guys were all Hellenists. They were Greek-speaking Jews sent into this difficult assignment that had prejudice and difficulty. And they were sent in to take a mess and make it better. And Stephen was one of those guys that was selected to do that. And sometimes, like in modern thought, we think of deacons as like, you know, he's this guy that uh, gives out bulletins and cuts shrubs and stuff like that. But this guy was a serious Christian. This was a person who was articulating his faith, and it caused him to come into the uh, violent encounter that we read about in this passage he was faithful I like words I enjoy reading I think about a word like faithful what does it mean you know basically it means he was full of faith he was full of faith he was a faithful faithful man and God's power working through him gave witness to God's reality 
But one thing we always keep in mind when we read passages of Scripture is that who's the hero of this story? Stephen? Nope. He is not the hero. God is the hero of the narrative. And the thing about his life that mattered is that through his life, people were pointed to God. People saw God through him. And we see in the passage he has this experience of opposition. And he immediately... And probably when you read about this, it talks about the synagogue synagogue of the freedmen, which is these are Roman citizens who had purchased freedom and who were believing Jews. They they were uh, the religion they followed was Judaism, and so in the first century, you see this conflict between this old way. And those who have come to believe that Jesus fulfilled the old way as Messiah, that Jesus was not destroying the old religion, but Jesus was the fulfillment and the completion of Judaism, that its extension and everything that God intended in it was fulfilled because of Jesus and what he did. And so there's this conflict that that happens, and Stephen's testimony invites persecution. The freedman that it talks about, probably because he was a Hellenist, that means that he was, we said last week, bicultural. He he didn't experience his own life just in the Hebrew community and context. He was sort of a citizen of the world. So he was familiar with the Mediterranean world, not just the Jerusalem world. He was familiar with the larger world. And so... These people who are angry at him are his old buddies. That's basically what it is. His old friends, the people that he would have been connected to, are the people that are now furious, indignant with him because of his testimony of Christ. And I thought about why Jesus pushes people's buttons. Because that's what's happening is that Jesus is the focal point of their fury. When you, when you read this narrative, you had to think, everything that Stephen went through, Jesus already went through, right? When you read this story, every point by point you say, that already happened to Jesus in exactly the same way. Jesus pushes people's buttons. Why? Because he makes demands of us that are all or nothing. All or nothing. He's Lord. That's what he says. That if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. The only person that can be saved is the person who confesses Jesus is Lord. So Jesus pushes people's buttons because he says, he he says, I didn't come to destroy your tradition, but I did come to fulfill it. But for them, it felt like he was destroying their tradition. So he threatens their identity. Their identity is in their nation. So nationalism, an aspect of what he claims allegiance over. He claims allegiance over nationalism. He claims allegiance over tradition. He claims allegiance over religious belief. Like you can have religious belief. If it's inconsistent with God's self-revelation in Christ, that religious belief is going to come into conflict with who Jesus is. So they they had religious belief, and Jesus says, I'm Lord over that. Comes into conflict with pride when a person, a proud person. 
The only God, listen to what God says in the Psalms. Like who who does God lift up? Who does He bless? The contrite person, the broken person. He says, the, whoever who does God help? The humble person. Who's the humble person? The person that says, I don't have what it takes. I need something outside of myself. I need someone outside of myself, which turns out to be what Jesus was all about as Messiah. Come, come in here to provide for you and me the redemption that we needed, the forgiveness, the pardon, the hope, to become the sinless Son of God, He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him, the Bible says. So Jesus destroys pride. You can't have pride and be connected to God through Christ. Have to lay it down. Have to be humbled. Hubris. Self-sufficiency. So when Stephen comes and he says, a lot of the things that you have been committed to have been superseded in Jesus, have been fulfilled in him. It's a, a full assault on all those things for them. And so how do they respond? The way we see in the text, right? And then we see in the passage Stephen's compelling wisdom. Verse 10 says that uh, they, couldn't, he, they couldn't confound him. Uh, look at verse 10 in the scripture there. It says, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. If there is no truth to be obeyed and conformed to, I don't know why we left home today. I don't know why you would do that or I would do that. Why did I get up this morning and set my uh, phone alarm for 6.30? Because there's truth to be obeyed and to be conformed to. That's why. Why do we live our life this way if there's no truth to be conformed to? And it's the most basic expression of our worship and our faith but I don't know why we would do that if there's not truth. Jesus is everything or he should be just something part-time that we do. If he's not everything, then we shouldn't commit everything to him. But if he is everything, he is worthy of all of our worship. He's worthy of all of our devotion. Think about Jesus as he stood before Pilate. He said, this is what Jesus said, in fact, the reason I came is to bear witness to truth. And he says, I came into the world to testify to the truth, and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. You remember Pilate's response? If you're familiar with that, I always this is one of my favorite Bible narratives. He says, what is truth? What is truth? He wasn't convinced. But Jesus says, I came from heaven. I left my eternal home eternal God, clothed in flesh, to come to this earth to say there is truth. He says, I came to bear witness to truth. And so that's why Stephen is not affected. That's why the opposition, I don't know how it would feel to, to feel like, okay, I know what happened to Jesus. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was uh, persecuted, beaten. And to know that these are the same people or a lot of the same people through the same channels that caused that to happen to Jesus. But Stephen is not affected because he knows that he's given testimony to truth. Stephen's opponents, false accusations we see in the passage that this has all been done before. Everything that's happening here has happened to Jesus in uh, Jesus' life and uh in Jesus' ministry and then in his trial. Jesus is accused of all the same. He came to destroy the Moses. You came to Jesus said, here's what was misinterpreted 
and that the apostles repeated. The, but the hearers, the religious uh, opponents, heard Jesus say, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. And he was talking about, the Bible says, himself. Destroy this temple, this flesh and blood body. And he says, I'm going to raise it up in three days. And he was raised in three days. But the other part of this is that Jesus had predicted that uh, what happened in 70 AD historically, that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. Not one stone was left on top of the other. That historically happened. And so Stephen's going to answer them, but these are their accusations, and it's been said before. But I think about sometimes like violence as an answer to philosophical problems, like the way that people riot and the way that people uh, persecute other people that they don't agree with. And we think, why does that happen? Why isn't reason adequate? If I disagree with you, why would I have to beat you up and stone you? You know, what are, what place does that come from certainly not godly love right it comes from some other really sinister place i like this quote from dr martin luther king jr he says the ultimate uh weakness of violence is that it it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy instead of diminishing evil he says it multiplies it. In other words, a person thinks, well, I will stop you, I'll shut your mouth, I'll beat you, I'll arrest you, I'll persecute you, but really that does nothing to diminish whether what the person believes or thinks is true or not. And what we find in Stephen's situation is that even though violence might multiply evil, it highlights the unassailable quality of truth. You beating this guy up, arresting him, killing him, is not going to change the fact that he is telling the truth. And truth can't be shut up. It springs up and it spreads and it perseveres. Like the Bible says, godly love never fails. And we see in the passage uh, Stephen's visible integrity because it says... uh, they all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him, verse 15, saw his face as the face of an angel. So people, if you're lying, there tales, right? Signals that you're lying, perspiration, you break out in a sweat, your pupils dilate, your breathing intensifies. And it, when they look at Stephen, they're like, he looks like an angel. You know, the tales about him, these unfounded claims uh, didn't unravel his peace. His peace was still intact. He was unperturbed. I was reading this week, I'd heard this quote before, uh, but we're thinking about martyrdom in this passage. We see the first martyr, the person to lay their life down. Um, Some of you, if you're interested in church history, may remember the Oxford martyrs. They were called three men who... And they they died in 1555, one of of whom was a man named Hugh Latimer, an English reformer, who died for nothing more than saying we should be able to read the Bible in our own language and we should be able to proclaim a biblical gospel at a time when nationalism was rampant in Europe and when the church was inseparable from the nation And when not to hold the line about the things that the church believed in that context would put you at risk of death, Hugh Latimer was burned as an old, old man. They took this old, old man and tied him to a pole and burned him 
in public. And this is what he said. He says, Master Ridley. Well, it is not up there. Uh, This is what he said. He says, Master Ridley, uh, be of good comfort and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. And that's doubt. Here's this old elderly man about to die. He says, play the man. That's what he tells the, another one of the guys that's about to die with him. Play the man. He says, we are about to light a flame, a candle in England that will never be put out. Guess who we're talking about today? Hugh Latimer over here in Effingham County, Georgia. He's not the hero. What he did was to play the man, but we see that the the effect of his testimony still is re, is resounding through our day. But also in this passage, we see, where am I? I'm going to keep looking back here occasionally. Stephen's sermon in martyrdom, which has two parts, okay? And, and it's this lengthy answer that he gives to them, which is a narrative of their nation's history. Did they not know this history? Of course they did. They knew it. What they did not do was apply the narrative appropriately. So he begins to give them Israel's history beginning with Abraham. So that's where their history begins. It begins with Abraham called out of his own country and to a place that God would show him. Didn't even know where he was going. He just knew that God had called. And so in answer to his accuser, Stephen gives them back this history of their nation that reveals the way that the accusers are thinking is out of, they're the ones that are out of step with God. They're saying, you're out of step with God, Stephen. He's like, nope, let's look at our history. What we'll see is that you are the ones who are out of step with God. So they're familiar with this history, but they were not familiar with what God was doing. And so that's a little frightening to think these people were steeped in religion. They knew these narratives. What they missed completely was what God was doing in the middle of it. So Stephen shows them the ark of the biblical narrative is Jesus. That's what he's showing them in this story, in this sermon, his narrative. He's saying, the ark, you say that I'm defaming Moses. You say that I'm speaking against the law. You say that I'm speaking against the temple. But what he shows them in their sermon is like, no, I'm completely faithful to everything God has been doing prior to now. So it begins with Abraham, his family, their call, then the patriarchs and Joseph. It uh, continues with them. And, and when you read the Bible, I remember very distinctly going through the book of Genesis once and when I'd finished, I preached through the book of Genesis on Sunday night at a church I used to be pastor of. And at the end of it, I thought, I thought it just kind of was the first time I had seen how clearly God was laying out everything he was doing throughout the whole rest of the Bible. It began in Genesis, which is called the book of beginnings. But in Genesis, in those 50 chapters, ending with Joseph, 
what you see is that God was bringing to the world a Savior through a nation, through a group of people, through a, a country, through the Israelites, and that it would culminate when Christ himself came. The events that shaped their, the lives of Abraham and his descendants, when you read the Bible, it looks like it's meandering through the centuries. But God was uh, providentially bringing uh, to us this epic tale of salvation. So even though I don't, you look at your family sometimes, it doesn't make all that much sense when we look at all the connections and relationships. It looked probably for them just exactly that way. But underlying the events of this family's lives was the bedrock of our salvation. This God is doing all of this in the context of a country and through these characters that we talk about, the patriarchs. And for them, it must have felt random and accidental at times, but it was dotted with the story of God that would finally be completely in focus in Emmanuel. You remember the, the prophet Isaiah had said that God is a virgin will conceive and bring forth a child and his name will be Emmanuel. In Matthew, when uh, Matthew tells the gospel story, he, he says his name is Emmanuel, God with us, God with us, that that's what he's doing through this nation of people. Through betrayal and slavery, they spend 400 years in Egypt in bondage and famine, and then and through Joseph and then through the uh, other parts of this family, God is bringing Christ. The next part of it, uh, the first part of his sermon, you see he talks about Moses all the way up to Joshua and here, all that he is doing is defending the idea that he is speaking against Moses in the temple. And verse 37 is the key verse in this part where he, he says, Moses said that I'm going to raise up a prophet after me. In him you'll hear in everything. He says, basically, here's what he says. This is the key. If you want to unlock your history, if you who want to kill me want to understand what God's doing, you need to go listen to Moses yourself. Because Moses said that there's going to be a prophet who will come after me and him you will hear and everything. And all the Jews took that to be a messianic passage. And so, but they had missed it, that this was who Jesus is, the Messiah. So far from undermining the laws, his accusers insisted, Stephen merely preached the promised successor to the true lawgiver. Stephen does not reject Moses. Rather, his adversaries reject Moses' successor. Jesus, that's what he's showing them. That's from a guy named Craig Keener. So the second part of Stephen's message basically begins to talk about the temple, the accusation. He says, you say, I've spoken against the law of Moses. You say that I've spoken against the temple. Well, let's look at the temple. That's where he changes and begins to focus on a different part of their accusations. And that's why when he starts talking about David, David wanted to build the temple, right? But God said through the prophet, you don't get to build the temple because you've got too much blood on your hands. That's what he said to David. His son Solomon ends up being the person to build a temple to God in Jerusalem, but then he quotes the psalm writer who says, there is no temple, there is no place that exclusively the Spirit of God is confined to. Because if you can build a temple like this place, it's drywall, 
Um, underneath it is a still erected bunch of studs and electricity and stuff going on. But this is a building. It could look like anything, but it's made from materials that God put on earth for people to use. So he says, any house that you build for me is built from stuff that I made available for you to use. And so what does God really want? That's what they need to see and, and are missing. And that's why he talks about David and Solomon in the temple. <clears throat> he directs them to the reality that God's not bound to a place. Of course, there are places where this history has unfolded, like Jerusalem, Israel, that are in the news, that we, we see the Middle East and the implications of what's happened there, but God's not confined. God never intent to be some local God. He never in, intended to be confined to some geographic space. The, Jesus himself said, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Ju- Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, that the gospel, the good news was going out everywhere from there. And so, what did you remember Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, the conversation he has with her? She's, she, I don't know. I've talked to lots of people uh, about their faith. Sometimes these are uh, distractions that happen conversationally to keep from talking about Jesus, you know, to keep from talking about the main thing. But she says, you Jews say that we should worship in Jerusalem, but Samaritans say that uh, the right place to worship is on this mountain, Shechem, that's mentioned in the story, Samaria. Sychar. And Jesus says, what did Jesus say to her? I tell you that there's coming a day when neither in this mountain nor Jerusalem is going to be seen as the place to worship. God's seeking people to worship him how? In spirit and in truth. So that's what Jesus told the Samaritan woman and what Stephen is saying in this passage. A time is coming now is when true worshipers will, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So it's what God is looking for now as well. Gathering at a place matters, but the reality in your heart matters more. Coming to a location is important. The reality that's internal, what's going on inside of a human being. Because even if we put our body in a vehicle and we leave home, it's no assurance that what came with us is a surrendered worship in life. But Stephen's saying to them, that is what the Father truly is after, is people that will worship him him in spirit and in truth. And then he gives them application and it gets him killed. Stephen's application was direct and forceful. And when we read the passage in the closing parts of this, his message was true and convicting. It confronted them and spoke to their need to repent. It's interesting that uh, the Bible says that Stephen said, I see heaven open and I see the Son of Man, what? Standing at the right hand of God, intensely interested. We, there are all kinds of ways to interpret that. I would say intense interest is one of those ways. He's intensely interested, maybe standing to advocate the truth of what Stephen is saying in his message, but he stands and he says, I see heaven open and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, which is a, a way of announcing once again his deity, his divinity. And so they're stirred, right? But not properly. There are different ways to be stirred. 
Their way in this story was to become enraged. Their fury came to a boiling point. And they followed through by stoning him, dragging him outside the city. It doesn't say in the passage that they took him back before the the appropriate thing would have been to get a pronouncement of death, which they couldn't do. But they drag him outside the city and they stone him to death and they put their clothing at the feet of a Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus. They could have repented, but instead they persisted in their hard-heartedness. And Stephen reflected an attitude that was Christ-like by praying for his opponents. Again, everything that he does is a reflection of what a Christ follower should be or it's some uh, imitation of what he had already observed in Jesus, which is what discipleship is. He prays as Jesus prayed, Father, don't lay this to their account. Jesus is suspended on the cross, the Bible says. His prayer for those who had nailed him through his wrist and feet and pierced his side and put a a crown of thorns on his head was, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And we know that that's exactly what Stephen does here is that he prays a remarkable prayer for forgiveness. I think about us. Many of us might theoretically say that if our lives were on the line and we were forced to denounce Christ that we would die <clears throat> Excuse me, before we would do that. And maybe that's true. I hope we're never faced with that terrible decision. I remember going to church when I was a kid and hearing about end times. You know, it was always popular to talk about and you know, would we take the mark of the beast and all those things and thinking of yourself in these heroic, you know, terms as a little kid, romantic, heroic, you know, I, would, I wouldn't take the mark of the beast. I would die before I would denounce Christ. And we think about, you know, if we were faced with that decision. But here's the truth. We're faced with this decision every day, whether we'll live for Jesus now. That's not theoretical. That's real. Every day, for however many days we're allowed to live here on earth, we can answer this question and have to. Will I give myself away today for Christ and others? I think about what martyrdom is. It's unlikely that anybody in this room will have to die for their faith their faith, it is very likely, in fact, it is absolutely likely that you'll leave here and have moment upon moment of opportunity to live for God and others. You have a life to lay down. The question is, do we lay it down? Do we give ourselves away? It's easy for uh, us as professing Christians to be dramatic and heroic and think we'd die before We'd renounce Christ, but it's much more likely that you'll be asked to give your life away incrementally by showing up and being available with a good attitude and a servant's heart day after day and small, nearly imperceptible things. We think, well, that's not very dramatic. No, but it's the same thing. It's giving your life away. It is sacrificing for the sake and the name of Christ. It is treating your life as if it is not your own possession. And any of us can do that, and all of us will be asked whether we will do that or we won't do it. The word martyr in the Bible is the word that witness comes to us from. When people translate English, the word witness, it is the a transliteration of the Greek word M-A-R-T-Y-R. 
they bring it into English, and the, the meaning that gets assigned to it is witness. And so martyrdom for us is everyday obedience and how it gives witness to Christ. I want to have a prayer. We're going to have a time of commitment to close our service, a song that we'll uh, sing together, and then the opportunity to go and live for Jesus from the uh, the time we live leave here. God, we're grateful to you that you are faithful, and God, that you've given us this incredible uh, history to observe, God, these uh, narratives of truth and power and how you showed up in people's lives and how willing they were because they had experienced the resurrection to give everything for you. And I pray for us, God, that our offering to you might not be half-hearted or half-minded. God, we would give ourselves to you completely. And God, forgive us and cleanse us and help us. God, we need your empowering to be witnesses uh, verbally and in our actions day after day and moment after moment. So we thank you for hearing our prayer and we offer it in Christ's name. Amen.